0: Today in the Year of the Bible series, we are going to be focusing in on Jeremiah. Now, if you are unfamiliar with the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was a prophet. Um, Jeremiah was not a bullfrog. I don't know if you know that song. My mom sang it a lot growing up. So I was like, Jeremiah was a bullfrog. No, he was a prophet. And an old friend of mine, sorry, can't get the song out of my head now. (laughs) Jeremiah was a prophet. Jeremiah was a prophet to the people of Judah, who uh, uh, were the Israelites who were in Judah when they divided kingdom. We've talked about throughout the year of the Bible. Um, And he was sent to declare that judgment was coming. Now, how many of you would just love that to be like the message that the Lord put on your heart? So he was a prophet and basically was like doom and gloom. I shouldn't say doom and gloom. Uh, Basically, his message to the people was turn or burn. No, I'm kidding. I mean, actually, that's a little bit like what it was. So let's read a little bit about what Jeremiah was saying to the people. He said in Jeremiah 32, verses 32 through 34, the people of Israel and Judah have provoked me by all the evil they have done. They, their kings and officials, their priests and prophets, that one grieves me. The men of Judah, not the women, no, I'm just kidding. The men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, they turned their backs to me and not their faces. Though I taught them again and again, they would not listen or respond to discipline. Now, I don't know about you, but something about that verse, it just, it settles so harshly because um, as a parent, even dog parents in here might be able to understand, when you are trying to teach and you teach over and over, you can see how God says, I taught them over again and again, but they would not listen or respond to discipline. I, that that grieves me so much because you can hear God's heart for us in the message. You can hear how God says, I have tried over and over to talk to you about this. I've tried over and over, and you wouldn't listen. And so now Jeremiah the prophet is gonna come and to tell you what's about to happen. So Jeremiah is a prophet. He is About to tell the people about God's discipline in their life. And now no one likes that. No one wants to be talked to about discipline. Not even my children. Please talk to my children about discipline. They will love it. Um, They don't. No, no one does. No one wants to be told uh, you've done wrong, you continue to do wrong, and now you get to go to the corner and put your arms above your head for 30 minutes. That's what my dad used to do. That was punishment. I'll tell you that right now. (laughs) What's wrong with that? He says. Jeremiah, though, was referred to as the weeping prophet. So while he was giving the message of the Lord, his heart also grieved. I would like to say, much like the Father's heart grieves for us. Over and over again, it says in Scripture, he tried to get our attention and we wouldn't listen. I want us to remember this phrase as it's really important. There's never a reward on the other side of rebellion. Now we think we can get away with it for just a little bit longer, or it's not that bad, or you know, no one has to know. But no matter what we do in an act of rebellion, there's never going to be a reward on the other side of it. We talked about this in midweek a little bit. We talked about how our sin has instant gratification and long-term uh, hardship, but how the life of a godly person has instant hardship, but long-term benefit, right? It does not feel exactly true in our life. Anytime that we do something that is sinful, it gives us immediate gratification, but in the long run, it just, it tears us up. And that is the nature of sin. But God is good. I want us to flip to another portion of scripture in Jeremiah. It says this, in Jeremiah 46 verses 28, we'll read 27 later, just 28 right now. It says, do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, for I am with you, declares the Lord. Though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only with justice or in due measure. Some translations say, I will not let you go entirely unpunished. This is the heart of God. So God says, he knows that sin is going to hurt you. So I have to discipline you. I have to teach you. So you're not going to continue to do that thing that is going to end in death. And yet still we don't listen, but he only does it in due measure. He he teaches us and disciplines us in due measure because God is, yes, gracious, yes, faithful, but God is also holy and a God of justice. So we're talking about this morning, the people of Judah who are God's chosen people, and they are full of sin. They are choosing sin. What are they doing that's so full of sin? Well, let me tell you what they're doing. They have a church, they have a tabernacle, and they decided inside of that tabernacle, inside of that church, to worship other gods. That seems a little rude. Like, the entire thing was set up to worship God himself, so it's not like they didn't have the time to worship God. No, they chose entirely to worship somebody different in the place that was meant for him. Not only did they do that, but they didn't honor the covenant. So a part of the covenant, part of uh, the Ten Commandments we might remember, was to honor the Sabbath, which is really funny to me because we think of that one as the the least commandment. That's the one we can get away with, right? It's like, I won't murder, I won't you know, envy, but maybe I'll not obey the Sabbath. I don't know, I could work seven days, or I'm not really working on this Sabbath day. We think that that one's the one that we can get away with, and yet that is actually one of the things that the Lord had against the people of Judah. He said, you don't honor my Sabbath. That's pretty heavy. I don't know. For me, it really convicted me because I'm a, I'm a worker bee. So I have told myself many a times that my Sabbath was uh, in other ways or I just didn't take one at all and just said, God, forgive me. That is shame on me. But God is not looking to condemn us to death. He's looking to discipline us back to life. I need us to hear that this morning because this can be a really, really tricky message when you're talking about sin. He's not looking to condemn us to death. He's looking to discipline us back to life. Now, I had mentioned the nature of sin was something that is gonna take you into a place that you were never meant to or created to by God. I want us to think about this. In the garden, in the, in the beginning of time, there was Adam and Eve. Was there death? No, there was no death. So God did not create death. Death was never a part of his plan, but the nature of sin, when sin entered the world, also death entered. I want us to look at this verse. It's all the way in the New Testament in James. James 1, verses 13 through 15 says this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted. When by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. That's rough, but true. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The very nature of sin is instant gratification because it's our own desire, right? But then when it's fully conceived, when it has fully birthed something into our life, The end is death. It will always be death. And so God is not looking to condemn us to death. He's looking to discipline us out of that sin back to life. That is God's heart for us. So discipline is never because he just wants to sit up in heaven and say, do this, don't do that. I can't believe you did that. I'm going to smack you on the head now. That's not the Lord. That might be a lot of parents growing up. That's not the Lord. The Lord always has good things for us. He always is wanting to teach us About his goodness. Now I said that there was another verse in Jeremiah 46 that I wanted to read. And it's right before verses verse 28. It's verse 27, leading into verse 28. So verse 28 talked about the punishment, right? It talked about how God can't let them go unpunished because he's trying to teach us something. And he can't just let you go unpunished, because then you'll never learn. If you've had a child, especially a two-year-old, you understand. Like if you don't teach them, if you don't discipline them, they're never gonna learn. But verse 27 sets it up a little bit differently. If we were to just read verse 28, we would see God as kind of a a more rigid father. But verse 27 says this, do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, O Israel. I will surely save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid." do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, for I am with you, declares the Lord. Though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only with due measure, I will not let you go entirely unpunished. Now, when we think of this, when we think of the God that says, you are mine, I will be with you always, I will surely save you, what is he saying to them? Well, they're about to face seventy years of captivity. The Babylonians are about to come in and invade and take over everything. And so, basically, there's no immediate hope for them. He is not telling them, uh, "You can be saved from your punishment. You can be saved by just repenting, and and God comes down and He washes your sin white as snow." That's not what he's saying. That's not the message. What he's saying is. God can't let you go unpunished. There will be captivity. There will be suffering. There will be grief. But I will be with you in it. And not only will I be with you, but at the end of it, I'm going to bring you back. I have good things in store for you. Actually, a lot of us remember this from Jeremiah 29, right? For I have good things for you. Let's go to Jeremiah 29. But let's start in verse 10. Let's start in verse 10 for what God says to the people of Israel, and let's hear his heart for us today. It says this, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. How many of you would love to hear God say that? I will be found by you. And I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So the captivity that happened, the Babylonians taking over and them being under such uh, harsh conditions, God actually led them to because of their sin. God was disciplining them and he, he led them because of their own actions. And yet, even in that, even before God had actually had the Babylonians come in and them being in captivity, he gave them a promise. I don't know if you've recognized this in scripture, but this actually happens a few times. So Peter, when Peter is with Jesus Jesus tells Peter towards the end of his ministry, you're gonna deny me. And in one of the books it actually says this, but when you turn again, teach my sheep, essentially, is help your brothers out. When you've turned again, I love that passage, when you've turned again. It says in the beginning scripture that we read that they turn their backs and not their faces toward him. Sometimes we turn our back and God says, You're gonna do it. You're going to fail. But when you turn again, God always has a way to tell us it's going to get messy and you're going to blow it. But before we ever do, he always has a plan for our rescue. He always has a plan for our redemption. He doesn't just leave it there like, oh, you're going to blow it and then I'm going to have to come in and save the day again. No, what he says is I have purpose even on the other side of your punishment. I don't know about you, but that gives me great hope because sometimes when I wake up in the morning, I don't wake up always in like the best mood, but if it's been a long night with the baby or even if it's just, you know, I'm cranky because that happens too, without sleep or with sleep, who knows? As a human, I will fail. I will do all the things that I was not meant to do and I will repent and then I will be tempted to be condemned. I will be tempted to be full of shame. And yet God says, you're not. I didn't condemn you. I didn't condemn you. It says, for while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And all throughout scripture, just as Jeremiah did to the people of Judah, he said, you're going to blow it. You did. This is the judgment. You're going to captivity. But guess what? On the other side of it, God is going to bring you back and he has good plans for you. He's not going to harm you. He wants to prosper you. So what does this say to us while we venture through our own suffering? because the Bible is a unified, uninterrupted story that leads to Jesus. So anything in the Old Testament is pointing us to something in the New Testament. Now, this promise given to Jeremiah, I know we like to quote it, it's not our promise. It's God's heart. It is who God is. It's his character towards us, but it's not our promise. We can still say, this is God's intention. God does have good plans for me, not to harm me. But guess what? We forget that the, they spent 70 years in captivity for their sin. We like to skip over that part and just claim the promise. And so I was like, if you're going to claim that promise, are you claiming 70 years of hardship? Because I do not claim that either. I don't want to claim the 70 years. And so the promise of good things, yes, that's God's intention for us. But what is it? What? Does God have specifically for us, what is our promise today in 2021 after 2020, which felt like 70 years of captivity? I'm going to just say it. Our reward waits on the other side of repentance. Our reward. What God has for us, our promise is on the other side of repentance. See, when we are disciplined, either we can act in rebellion against that, which is what the Israelites did. They rebelled against the judgment. They rebelled against Jeremiah's words, even though he's pleading time and time again, come back to the Lord, come back to the Lord. Sometimes I think that 70 years was because it took them 70 years to finally repent. I was like, is, is now a good time? Like, are you done yet? But they pushed and they pushed against it and they were angry with the Lord and they worshiped other people and they decided not to obey him. And yet, God still said on the other side of it, knowing everything that they would do, that He had good for them. So, what is our promise today? How is the Bible a unified, uninterrupted story that leads to Jesus? And what does Jesus have to say about my suffering? What does Jesus have to say about my suffering? I want us to remember this, and don't stone me, hear me out. All suffering is because of sin. Okay, all suffering, all grief, all pain is because of sin. Now, how can I say that to a person that's dying of cancer? How can I say that to a person who just lost a child? How can I say that when somebody has lost their job and all means to provide for themselves? How can I say that when somebody who did nothing wrong is suffering? I can prove it because of scripture, but we've talked about much of it. Suffering is because of our sin, like the Israelites in our story. It's because of the sin of other people. We have to remember, Jeremiah was also one of the people that was in captivity because of them, the entire nation. Even the prophets, it says, were evil, but Jeremiah wasn't evil. He was one of the, one of the good ones, right? And even he had to suffer. Even he had to be in captivity for the sin of the nation. So it's our sin, it's the sin of others that we have to suffer through as well, or it's original sin. The original sin, death came into the world through Adam and Eve. It was never God's plan for our life. The suffering, the grief, the pain that we feel that we have to venture through, the prayers that go unanswered, the begging and pleading with the Lord. I have been there. I have understood what it is to suffer deeply because God did not fulfill what I thought he had promised to us. And that pain and that suffering, how dare you look in my face and say that suffering is because of sin. It is. It wasn't my sin. It wasn't my brother's sin that put him on his deathbed. The original sin did that. The original sin. All suffering is because of some sin. Now, if it's my sin, I can repent. (laughs) That's the good news. That's actually the easiest of all of our suffering is when we bring it upon ourselves because then we can repent and receive forgiveness, right? So I would prefer that it was my sin that caused me to suffer because I can repent and my reward is on the other side of that repentance. But what do you do when the suffering isn't your sin? What if you're a victim and it's somebody else's sin that you are having to trudge through? What if the original sin has caused diagnosis that's terrible? What if the original sin has caused a lifetime of pain? How is Jesus our hope in suffering? This is what I want us to wrestle with today, but not without an answer. Jeremiah was a prophet, but he was also the writer of Lamentations. Lamentations is this beautiful, incredible, poetic, it's all poetry, uh, five chapters The first starts off in mourning, desolate mourning, hopeless mourning, talking about Israel and their judgment and their pain and their suffering, and then it moves into praise and ends with prayer. Actually, chapter three is like the most climactic part of lamentations, and it's beautiful because it actually doesn't offer us the answer for suffering, which you might think I was going to be giving you at this moment. Hold on for that. Lamentations is a companion during suffering. So I want us to draw our attention to Lamentations 3, verses 19 through 25. And if you're suffering, I want you to take this to heart. It says this I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I don't know about you, but these could be words from a lot of us. I remember my affliction, I remember the wandering, the bitterness. I will remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Everyone say hope. I remember everything. I remember the pain. I remember the anguish. I remember the sorrow. I remember the deep pit of despair. Yet I call this to mind. That is an intentional action. Yet I call it to mind. I call it to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Remember, he said he would save them. He said he'd burn everyone else down, but I would preserve them. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Verse 24. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait on him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It says this, I have hope, but we often imagine um, a very skewed definition of hope. Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, I hope I get this job. I hope that works out for you. I hope your kid doesn't tantrum in the middle of a store. That's my favorite, because they will, because they're children. I hope, man, I hope that works out. Our earthly idea of hope is not God's. Biblical hope is not earthly hope. Biblical hope is found in Lamentations 3 when it says, whose hope is in him. See, we have no hope here because when we talk about, oh, I hope that works out for you, what we're talking about is a good outcome. What we're talking about is a wish. Oh, I wish that was really what's gonna happen, but not hope. Hope has to be secure. Hope has to be firm. Hope has to be something that we can hang our hat on and walk away from in the middle of suffering. And that's not hope if you say, oh, I hope you get that job and they don't. That's conditional. That's a good outcome. That offers nothing to you. So how can we have hope as believers? What is our hope? Lamentations had it right. Our hope is in him. And we have something even greater than the Israelites did. We have Jesus. We are New Testament believers. We didn't have to sacrifice. We didn't have to go to the priest to speak on our behalf. We are New Testament. So how is Jesus our hope in suffering? Well, let's look at 1 Peter 1 three through 9 as Nate comes. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope, a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded, by God's power, until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Friends, I don't know if you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, but this passage that Peter's writing talks about a living hope. It says in verse 7, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise. (laughs) Your trials, your testing may result in praise, in glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving, this is it, the goal of your faith the salvation of your souls. Jesus is our hope in suffering because Jesus took the eternal punishment for our sin. That is our hope. That is what we have before us. It says in scripture to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. When we are going through something, when we are running and exhausted and we are suffering, it says to fix your eyes on him, to look at the cross and remember what he did for our soul. So guess what? None of it's in vain. So even if my body perishes, even if my brother passes, even if the person, the doctor that I'm seeing is giving me a bad diagnosis, guess what? No matter what happens on this side of eternity, I have an eternal soul. I have an eternal life that I get to have because of what Jesus did for me. So I don't have to be hopeless. I can be depressed sometimes on this earth. I could be in distress sometimes here. I can have sorrow and grief. But guess what? As a Christian, I never have to be hopeless because I have hope. When everything else fails, I have hope. But if we misunderstand hope to believe it's a good outcome, then I could feel hopeless. If I could misunderstand hope to mean that things are gonna work out for me, that I could escape my judgment, that I could escape what is coming my way because of my wrongdoing or someone else's wrongdoing, then I would have no hope. But I have hope. I have hope because Jesus took the eternal punishment for my sin, but he also did something else for us. Jesus is my hope in suffering because Jesus gave us access to his everlasting presence. If you remember absolutely nothing else from this morning, I pray that you remember this. Let's read in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter six, verses 17 through 20. It says, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. That's us. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I brought a little because you know, kids church and you have to see things sometimes. In the Old Testament, how God set up the temple was that there was an inner sanctuary. Many of us know that. We know that a regular Joe Schmoes could not go into the sanctuary where God's presence was. So there was uh, an outside where normal people like us could be. There was an inner court where some people could be people who served in the temple. There was a sanctuary and an inner sanctuary, and only in the inner sanctuary could priests go. Priests who were out without sin, without fault, only they could go and commune with God. Now, this was really important because, uh, as you know, priests were also human, so they were not always sinless, right? They were not always, um, even Eli anyway, There was a lot of sin that was happening. Priests were sinful as well, shocker. They needed a savior, just like pastors, by the way. And what they would do for the priest is they would tie a rope around the bottom of his feet. Now, I would like to say that I found a big rope. Let's just pretend this is like a really sturdy rope that could like pull a grown man out, okay? We'll just pretend, that's okay. So they would tie a rope to the bottom of his feet and they'd send him into the inner sanctuary. And what they would say, oh, I don't know if I could do this. Thank you, Jesus. What they would say is, I hope that he's sinless today. That's good enough. I hope that he didn't do anything that was against the Lord, because I really need my sins to be heard. I really need my prayers to be heard by God himself. And I'm sending in the priest, and I sure hope that he didn't envy right before he went in. He didn't look at somebody's shoes and be like, "Them's cute shoes, and then go before the presence of the Lord. I sure hope because I need to hear from God. So they'd send the priest in. And sometimes they'd hear a thump and I would pull him out. All right, he's dead. Who's the next one in line? Because the priest was the only one, the only one, but when Jesus came, when he was on the cross, it says that the veil was torn. It says that we therefore can come boldly into the throne of grace, receiving mercy in time of need. I love that because that means that I have access now, that my prayers, I don't have to go to someone and say, hey, can you tell the Lord this? And then wait, sitting on the sidelines. No, instead, what I do is I tie my hope rope to the foot of Jesus, who, by the way, is sinless. It says that he goes before us into the inner sanctuary. And guess what? I'm not waiting on the outside, waiting for him to drop dead or hoping that he doesn't. Instead, what I get to do is I get to be drugged in behind him. I'm not waiting on the outside anymore because Jesus is my hope and it's strong and secure. And instead of waiting and hoping, I get to be pulled in like a fish and told, guess what? Tell him what you need. Guess what? It says, in my presence, there is fullness of joy. So if you are suffering, that is the hope. The hope is that I have an eternal soul that gets to make heaven one day. But my hope is also that I can have joy in his presence because I get to be in his presence. I don't have to be on the outside anymore, but it's only behind Jesus that I get to come into the inner sanctuary, only behind him because on my own, I'd be no better than that priest that would drop dead being pulled out. I don't get to make it on my own. But because of Jesus, who is our hope, because of Jesus, who says that he would forgive my sin, because of Jesus, it says in scripture, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All, not some, not only like the top 10, all. Gosh, I don't know about you, but I need that. I need forgiveness. It said, remember in Lamentations, every morning, great is thy faithfulness, because he's gracious every morning. I think of that old song, morning by morning, new mercies I see. Great is thy faithfulness. So when we are feeling like we are in a season of suffering or pain or grief, something we've done, it's God disciplining us, which is real. Friends, don't push against it. Or something that we've had to endure because of someone else or even none of the above. It's just because this world sinned. I pray that we would remember our eternal hope heaven and heaven on earth. Heaven on earth.